Hi everyone, this is Micah. Before we roll the bumper music and start this episode of A Thoughtful Faith, I wanted to um, explain a couple things about these next four episodes with Andrea Radke-Moss. The first two episodes Andrea and I recorded last fall, right after General Conference, where the change of the missionary age was announced, and so you'll notice a lot of our conversation surrounds that, um, the significance of that. And then um, for various reasons, mostly due to me actually losing the audio file, <laughs> um, we, uh, the, we had to postpone the release of this episode. But thankfully, I found a, um, uh, a low-resolution backup file that, that you can listen to here, even though it's a little, the, the quality is a little bit um, degraded. But uh, by the time we got all that figured out, so much uh, happened and changed over the winter um, with Mormon feminism, with the um, wearing pants to church and the movement to let women pray in general conference. And so a few weeks ago, Andre and I got back together and recorded the what are the last two episodes um, of our of our discussion. And so I wanted to just explain that because uh, I think it's a little disjointed if you don't <laughs> understand the backstory. So anyway, um, Andrea uh, was very gracious in, in being patient with me as uh, we worked out some of the bugs on our end. And um, I think what we have now are some really great episodes of A Thoughtful Faith. And so, please enjoy. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace A Thoughtful Faith podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of A Thoughtful Faith. I am Micah Nicolaisen, and I am really excited to have with me Professor Andrea Radke-Moss. Andrea, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, for just a quick bio, Andrea is a professor at BYU-Idaho. Um, she did her undergrad and graduate work at BYU in Provo, and completed her PhD in American West and women's history at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. Um, Andrea is married to her husband Stephen, and they have two wonderful children, and we're, and they are raising them in good old Rexburg, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? That's correct. <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, Andrea, thanks so much for joining us. Um, right now, there is a lot of attention surrounding uh, gender dynamics and gender equality in Mormon culture right now. And uh, Andrea um, is uh, very well versed in this subject, especially on sort of the historical context of the discussions we have about gender roles within a a Mormon context. And uh, she has written a lot of articles over the past several years. Uh, She's been featured on FAIR and um, the juvenile instructor, and she's a a frequent contributor to um, a lot of the resources that we find on the Blogernacle about this about this subject. Um, but before we dive into uh, gender dynamics, 
Um, Andre, I think it'd be great if our listeners could uh, get a little bit of your background and your backstory. And so what we typically do is, you know, tell us a little bit about um, where you grew up and what your relationship was to Mormonism in your childhood. And and also what we really want to know is how um, how you got interested in studying uh, women's history and um, and how that has influenced your Mormonism. Sure. Um, well, I could start with that I grew up in the state of Illinois. I was actually born in Nebraska. My parents are both Midwesterners, both born and raised in Illinois, and they are converts to the church in um, 1963. They took a trip to the West and saw a billboard for Temple Square. Um, they were a young married couple, and they decided to visit Temple Square. Um, did that the tour back in the day when they had volunteers do it, and um, they were impressed with what they saw and heard. So they filled out the little card, and a couple months later, missionaries showed up on their door in Illinois, and that was in 1963, I believe. They took the missionary lessons for about six months and uh, decided to join the church. So, so both your both your folks are converts to the church, and mm-hmm. um, and so where did did you spend most of your your formative years in Illinois, or did you guys move at all? Or yeah, I was born in Nebraska, and we moved from there when I was almost four years old, and I have some uh, some vague memories of it, and actually of of participating in the church uh, even as a young child. Um, there, I can remember going to Sunbeam's class, and I can remember attending my brother's baptism. And I was only, you know, three years old, and I have those those very vivid memories. We moved to Illinois, back to Illinois, where my parents grew up, um, for job reasons in 1975, and that's where I was raised. Okay, so that's where um, you my, spent yeah. your teenage years was in Illinois, right? Right. Okay. Right. Well, my part of formative Illinois. years. Um, it's a little town called uh, Savannah, which is right on the Mississippi River, um, just across the river from Iowa. So our stake was actually, our ward was a ward in Iowa, and our stake was a stake in Iowa, and our mission was an Iowa mission. So I'm very much, so that, that being on the boundary was very much kind of an Iowa-Illinois dual identity, <laughs> if that makes sense. Gotcha. Um, and okay. I was raised, uh, my parents were very devout and very active in the church um, in my formative years. And so we were raised uh, very much that way. Um, I, you know, I tended toward a very believing disposition as a child. I was, um, I, I thought and questioned and felt things very early. And I feel like my testimony was formed very early. Um, I read the Book of Mormon when I was 11 for the first time, um, challenged by my my primary teacher. And um, as a teenage as a teenage girl in the Young Women program, I had very much a, dispos- a disposition toward obedience and faithfulness. I I was not. Um, I didn't have the inclinations at that time to necessarily question or think about things um, deeply from a contrary perspective, if that makes sense. It was very much an accepting kind of thought. Things made sense to me. I wanted to believe. I, I, I felt a great affinity for the Restoration. I felt a great love of the Book of Mormon very early in my life. Okay, very cool. Um, 
Yeah. So did you ever, was there ever a period where you um, struggled with your um, testimony or your faith or, um, cause obviously you went to, to BYU and, um, yes. <laughs> uh, I will say yes. And it's, it's sometimes an ongoing struggle for me. Um, you know, being an intellect is for however people want to value that term, whether it's a negative term or whether it's a positive term, when you, when you're exposed to academic approaches to things and historical context and, various philosophies it does make you it does make you question the fundamentals it goes it makes you go back to the fundamentals and kind of reevaluate them and so i've had i've had definite periods of questioning my periods of kind of unwilling agnosticism of you know what is really out there and um how much is divine versus how much is cultural um those kinds of questions those kinds of questions have um, plagued me very much since especially since becoming educated going to college being introduced to all of those things but i think that it's it's helped me to filter my testimony down to what's really important as opposed to some of the the kind of the wrappings um the dress that is more cultural or things that are not necessarily grounded in reality and, and to be able to kind of winnow down to what is the most important things. And certainly my, my um, questions and my studies over women's issues have, have had a role in that questioning as well. I mean, how can it not, you know, when you are a woman and you are in a faith that is patriarchal and then you are, blessed with a questioning nature then naturally your questioning nature is going to go to the issues of what what is women's place in the church that's run by men and so yeah all those all those things have very much influenced my developing always developing testimony how's that (laughs) very cool thanks for sharing that so um tell us a little bit about what uh life was like for you at byu i loved it i you know, growing up in the Midwest where I was the only um, LDS person in my high school, I there was a sense of solitude about that that wasn't, wasn't always good. <laughs> you want to feel like there are people that not only are like you religiously, but that share some of your same um, likes and joys as far as culturally and artistically. And I felt going to BYU that not only did I find out the other LDS companions, but I found LDS companions that were willing to explore history and culture and music in ways that I didn't find um, fulfilled as a teenager, if that makes sense. I, I, um, and I loved it. I loved being exposed. I mean, a small town Illinois girl, I mean, a small town Midwestern girl that I came from a town of about 3,500 people all of a sudden on a campus of 27,000 and just to be able to attend operas, just to be able to attend symphony performances on a weekly basis, you know, the, as, as far as how much that just, it was just like the world changed for me. It was, it was so eye-opening. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, as somebody that grew up in sort of suburban Utah, I think because you're so acclimated to that culture and you're ra- and you're immersed in it all the time, you know, for me, I wanted to get away from that. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I think people, um, you know, members of the church who grow up outside of, you know, the, 
the Mormon corridor, whatever you want to call it, the, it, it is it's sort of the opposite experience. And so I think that's really interesting. Yeah, at that moment in my life, I craved that kind of companionship rather than to reject it. I would, I'll go through different kind of acceptance, rejection phases after that. But in, in those formative years, it was absolutely just a life send to me to be able to interact with other LDS college-age kids. Cool. So at what point did you uh, start finding interest in studying history and in particular studying women's history? Um, the interest in history came very early. I was um, a freshman, a sophomore, when I just, I really, I'd, I'd grown up kind of with historical context in my family, a very history-oriented family. And so it was a natural inclination for me to pursue history. I love I loved the idea of teaching. I love the idea of um, I feel comfortable in front of a um, a group of students. I feel comfortable in front of a classroom, and so it just seemed like a natural um, extension of that. As far as the women's history, I ironically I wasn't interested in it as an undergraduate. I didn't take women's studies courses. I didn't um, develop a kind of gendered awareness or a gendered perspective of history. I was taking, I was very much interested in kind of traditional narrative forms of history, American West and explorers and fur traders and all those kinds of things that were exciting and um, just kind of very male oriented because I just found the topic interesting. But I, I remember having a sense of my identity as a woman, but I was in conflict at the time. I, like many young women, I went to BYU with the whole expectation of early marriage and family because you are so acculturated to expect that and to seek for that, and that didn't come to me. That that wasn't a reality for me. I didn't date a lot at BYU. I, you know, dated here and there. Um, as with high school, I had a lot of male friends. I've often been fascinated by that dynamic with myself is that I'm always drawn to male companions, but not in a romantic way. And so I, um, I, I very much early on felt this conflict between the fact that I was, um, how shall I say, I was seeking marriage and family. It wasn't coming to me, but I also wasn't making educational choices that were appropriate for not getting married, if that makes sense. I was kind of doing the typical fallback plan that a lot of young women do. Well, in case I don't get married, I'll just do this. And gotcha. I, wasn't, I wasn't pursuing my education as this absolute goal-driven, this is absolutely what I want to do. Until I, maybe my junior or senior year, when I, one of my professors had me be his TA, and a couple of times he had to be absent, and so he allowed it. He allowed me to direct the class discussion. And just having that moment of being in front of a college classroom, it kind of, I felt this, I want to be a professor. I really want to be a professor. And so from that point on, I felt that sense of drive and ambition that I hadn't felt before. I kind of found my place as a woman with an individual identity, with my own goals that were outside of just the quote-unquote fallback plan. Gotcha. So just to make sure I understand, so you 
you went to BYU with this sort of, uh, I guess you would say, uh, pretty standard cultural Mormon expectation that you'd go to BYU, you'd meet your your husband, you'd get, you'd get married, and then, you know, whatever, after, whatever happened after that happened. And then okay. that sort of shifted um, as you became more interested in um, – in, in an acad- academic career. And Absolutely. So, so how did that um, influence your, sort of your relationship to Mormonism? Hmm. I think it started to refine it a little bit because I was realizing that all of the kind of prescribed, pre, uh, how should I say, the pre-narrative that you come with that everybody goes to BYU, everybody gets married, everybody lives happily ever after, doesn't happen. And so I had to have backup plans in the other direction. I had to have, well, what do you do if you don't get married? I have to start making plans for myself. And so that kind of shifted my paradigm a little bit. But at that time, I still wasn't thinking, oh, I'm not going to be married until I'm 35 years old, 34 years old. I'm not going to be married for another 12 years I that wasn't even in my thought processes so at the time I think what was shifting my Mormonism a little bit is that I was taking history classes that started to um, kind of undermine a lot of the traditional myths that I had been told about church history and that that process or that um, that engagement all history students go through. I mean, everybody goes through it at some point in their education where all of a sudden they're faced with the reality or the conflict between what you've kind of been taught growing up versus what really happened in church history. Not that it always um, conflicts, but there are definite narratives that you get growing up that are more refined once you find out more about them. And so that's what started my process of kind of refining my understanding of the gospel, what was really important, trying to sift through um, my own foundational changes as as they were happening of, wow, what is is really true if some of the things that I've been told growing up are not always grounded in reality or there's more nuance to them that I wasn't told, then what is really true? And that that exploration started then that I think was more influential even the, than the fact that I wasn't getting married. The, what, the not getting married thing was kind of secondary to all of this historical understanding that I was getting. Interesting. So how did, at that, at that stage, how did you reconcile that? Well, how can you when you're 19 years old? I think sometimes academics and professors, I mean, we're a little arrogant sometimes and we think that we can throw a whole bunch of new knowledge at an 18 or 19-year-old kid and expect them to process it completely right there on the spot. You know, I mean, I'm now I'm over 40 and I'm still processing things. And so I think it, hmm. it just started me on the path of, you know, one small narrative change leads to another narrative change leads to another narrative change. And so... A lot of it had to do with talking to other historians that I considered somebody that I could confide in and say, well, I was told this, how do I make sense of this? And then having some historians, professors usually, help me work through it. So you had some good mentors at BYU. Okay. Anybody we would know? Um, Douglas Tobler, who's retired now. Um Mary Stovall Richards, um, Jim Allen, 
Tom Alexander, um, famous Mormon historian, um, Martha Bradley or Marty Bradley. She was another professor I really looked up to. All, all of them were individuals that I looked up to because I saw them as being very intellectual, as having just a just a hair of cynicism. They don't, you know, they they just look at everything very, very objectively, and yet they're still they're still active in the church. They're still participating in the church, and so I looked up to them as examples of. Wow, you can be an intellectual. You can work through these um, historical dilemmas in the church, but you can still be a, a faithful member of the church. And so, so how did uh, so how did your story uh, shift towards focusing on uh, women's history? Good question. I served a mission. I came home from my mission, and um. I kind of dawdled around for about a year. I taught in the BYU Nauvoo program, and there, I was still pretty young. I was 26 when I taught in the BYU Nauvoo program. I had a master's degree. So when I came home from my mission, I was kind of dawdling around doing these part-time teaching gigs because I didn't have a PhD yet, and in history especially, you just you just don't get hired if you don't have a doctorate and so I taught in this BYU and Nauvoo program and there I sat in on some of my colleagues classes listening to their takes on Mormon history and doctrine etc that they're giving to the students and and again a lot of refinement going on a lot of exploring of church history topics and at that point I started to feel a small kind of push towards looking at Mormon women's history issues. The first topic that was pointed to me, or I was pointed in the direction of this topic, was through um, Ken Godfrey, another Mormon historian. He lives in Logan. He's retired now, lives in Logan. And he was giving a lecture one day to the students that I was just sitting in on about Zion's camp and said something about you know, there were men, there were women that went on the Zion's Camp expedition, and the students said, "Really? We've never heard this before." And he said, "Yes, nobody's ever written on it. Nobody's ever researched it." And I just jotted in my notes, "No one's ever researched the women of Zion's Camp." So I went to work. I went to work researching the women of Zion's Camp, and I ended up. Um, by the time I got to Nebraska, this was a topic that I was working on, and then I ended up getting it published at BYU Studies. So that was my first foray into Mormon women's um, history. But at the time, I didn't consider myself a Mormon women's historian. I considered myself a historian of the American West who happened to dabble in women's history from time to time. Then during my PhD, I actually was focusing on just kind of general American West topics but it was also in the middle of my, my doctorate that I realized I really need to focus on women's history of the American West. This is what I need to do. That that was something I needed to focus on during my doctorate. And that's how it was, that's how it was born. And then my dissertation ended up being on a women's history topic. Okay. So. Very cool. Um, per- perhaps I think it'd be beneficial just to sort of the bookend to your um, – to what you've shared with us so far about your story, um, you mentioned uh, that uh, you, you sort of got married a little bit later than than uh, than is sort of typical for uh, Mormon culture. So, would you mind telling us a little bit about 
um, you know, your experience in the 30, in your 30s and, you know, as you were finishing that up and getting married and how that's sort of affected your, your career? Absolutely. I'm happy to talk about that. And it's not embarrassing or anything at all. I, you know, I was single for all those years. I um, dated along the way. I had um, a couple of relationships, sort of, but never a serious relationship. I had, if I did have a relationship, often ending in disappointment. And so by the time I was finishing my doctorate, I had pretty much kind of concluded that I would be a single for the rest of my life. I that was my predetermined conclusion. I figured that there was I I was just too different that there was no match for me out there. You know, that I wouldn't I wouldn't uh I wouldn't fit with anybody and that and that was okay because I had I had a a specific spiritual experience actually regarding this in which um I had just experienced a great disappointment and in trying to work through that disappointment I felt this overwhelming sense that I had a greater purpose in life that I had something big that I needed to do if I don't I don't know if that's sharing too much personally. No, I think that's that's really great. Tell me more. <laughs> well, in that sense of something bigger to do, I I just felt like I needed to be some kind of mentor to LDS young women in some fashion either as a professor or in you know leadership positions in the church or whatever that I could help LDS young women work through um some of these conflicting identity problems that we as as LDS women have especially that whole notion of if you've conditioned yourself your entire life that you're going to be married and have kids and that doesn't happen then how do you kind of regroup and change direction and and frame yourself in a different way that is still self-validating and and you still find worth in the whole big plan and I just felt this overwhelming sense that that's what I was meant to do and so that gave me this this kind of push forward I guess that no matter what happened in my life personally I knew what I'm supposed to do professionally I knew that I was supposed to be a professor I wanted to be a, a professor to um, hopefully predominantly LDS kids, but not necessarily excluded to that, but especially to young women and to help young women work through crises of faith or crises of identity in a faithful way. That was always something that, I mean, since that moment when I had that kind of epiphany, I felt that great sense of mission my whole life. So. Wow. That's, that's really, that's really neat. Thanks for sharing that. So, so then Steve came along, right? Steve, yeah, I, I uh, taught at BYU for a couple of years and um, hoped for that for a long-term gig, but that didn't pan out. And so I um, took kind of by default a one-year teaching position at BYU-Idaho, which was a new experiment. And I had never gone to Rick's. I had no sense of, you know, I had no real loyalty to the institution and I I just thought it would be a temporary thing and literally like a week and a half after I had had arrived here I had to get a prescription filled my husband is a pharmacist and he filled my prescription and that's how we met <laughs> <laughs> Really that is so cool <laughs> Very cool about a, month, about a month later we we started dating and I, I you know honestly 
I, he was kind of my last chance. I, I even said to myself, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see if this guy asks me out or if he, I'd been disappointed so many times. I, I thought, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put all my eggs in this basket. I'm going to give him one chance. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't reciprocate, then I'm done and I'm not going to invest anymore. I'm not going to be one of these man chasers kind of thing. And sure enough, he reciprocated the first time. So he, he saved himself. I, I <laughs> all right. Way to go, Steve. <laughs> Very cool. So, um, and, so we got, and yeah, we got married, um, less than a year later, but, um, almost, almost a year. It was about 11 months later. We got married after we met and, um, and then three years later, we had our little boy. And two years after that, we had our little girl. So who are now four and two. Very cool. That's about the same age as, as my kids. Um, well, thank you for sharing all that. That's uh, very, I think it's really helpful for for me and, and I'm sure for our listeners to just kind of get a sense of, of where you're coming from. Um and I think you did a good job of sort of touching on some of the things that we'll we'll talk about during the during sort of uh, some of the other substantive things that we're going to touch on. Um, one thing um, that you and I have discussed as we've been kind of going back and forth, and one thing that I think um, is pretty prevalent in a lot of your writings about uh, women and Mormonism is you express that at the core of Mormon theology, there are, there are so many elements that are empowering to women. Mm -hmm. And, um, and sometimes that is, uh, sort of in, in, in conflict of what, uh, some Mormon women feel in, uh, in LDS culture, but what are, would you mind spending some time and, and perhaps walking us through what you feel are some of those empowering elements in, in Mormonism that are meaningful to you? Yes, and I'm coming at this from a 19th century perspective because I consider myself kind of heavily ensconced in the 19th century. Um, you know, most of the early women converts to the church, like most of the men, were seeking something very specific. They, that they felt was promised in the scriptures. They were seeking an opening of the heavens, both literally and figuratively. They were, they were seeking the renewal of spiritual gifts. And sure enough, those spiritual gifts were granted to them. The, you know, the speaking in tongues and um, healing, um, laying on hands, um, having visions either in dreams or outside of dreams, all of these types of spiritual manifestations that were equally granted to women as much as men, especially when you look at kind of our very Pentecostal period of the 1830s. And, um, and, and so that was some, that's something that I often look back on, even though we don't um, express those spiritual gifts in the same way or to the same degree that our forebears did in the 19th century that was that was a part of the restoration of the gospel that they particularly cherished and embraced um, another thing is simply the the relationship to deity a relationship to deity as far as um, that men and women are have the potential to become like god um, that the whole idea of a pre-mortal creation a pre-mortal existence those elements that link us 
to our pre-birth life and our our post-death life are just i think that 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 gave early mormons this wonderful sense of identity and empowerment um and especially the fact that even though it's not discussed or talked about the idea of a female deity figure and a, a heavenly mother and that the heavens are gendered i mean you know we believe the heavens are gendered and that men and women have those that they can look up to aspire to in the eternities so those are the aspects of the the cores of the restoration that 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 whole the holy ghost the is granted to men and women equally the the right to appeal to deity and receive an answer is is just as much the purview of women as it is of men and in the 19th century they very much felt that and we do too today it's just sometimes our roles as women in the church today are kind of draped in all of this kind of cultural expectations of marriage and family and certainly that was significant in the 19th century obviously or we wouldn't have instituted radical marital institutions um, for the purposes of procreation Um, but sometimes I think we focus too much on how good of homemakers we are rather than perhaps the spiritual gifts that we are endowed with as as women. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you is that at its foundation, you know, the, the restoration and the gospel that Joseph Smith sort of rolled out um, was very progressive when it comes mm-hmm. to, you know, acknowledging the the equality of 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 men and women together and um not just uh in, in our in our lives here on earth but extending into the eternities and you know absolutely from, and you know what i gather from from what we've discussed and from your writings that that was a pretty radical pretty radical new uh, uh new idea that was that was somewhat unprecedented Absolutely. And the Relief Society, we haven't even talked about that, but the Relief Society in its original formation as it was as it was restored or or created, however historians want to see that, by Joseph Smith was in itself a I mean it was partly out of historical context. There were many quote unquote benevolent societies that women were participating in already in the late eighteen thirties and eighteen forties in the in new england there was a kind of a precedence for um some women's organizations but the fact that the relief society took on a a life of its own as a spiritual organization whereby women were preparing to officiate in temple rites that was one of its purposes as well as an organization whereby they were expressing spiritual gifts. Um, both of those things made it something entirely radical and revolutionary from what the usual woman's organization of the 1830s and 40s was. And and that in itself, um, just an incredibly noble and novel idea. Right, and I think, um, and I think it's important to um, sort of remind um remind our audience that the relief society in its original inception was an autonomous organization um that that operated independently of of any priesthood hierarchy which is different than how it is today but at the time it was its own um autonomous group um and for a long time um 
you know, in the early, in the Nauvoo Relief Society, the men were showing up all the time. And so I don't necessarily want to make the argument that the Relief Society was completely autonomous because you have Joseph Smith attending the meetings and, and John Taylor. But yes, autonomous, especially after in, in the Nauvoo period as the Relief Society kind of evolved into an organization that was very much autonomous, that they own, earned their own money, um, collected their own dues, all the things that the Relief Society did, grew their own wheat, etc. Um, and now we're very much a correlated Relief Society, which is, you know, to be fair, is one of the issues that um, some feminists today have, have, a, have a difficulty with, is that sense of the loss of autonomy that, that Mormon women at once had. But also, you know, in my readings of the Relief Society and its relationship to the priesthood hierarchy in the 19th century, they never considered themselves at odds with the priesthood. I don't want to say never. They they didn't come across as being at odds with the priesthood leadership. They considered themselves very much as partners with the hierarchy of the church and that they were in tandem and working working alongside of them and would not have done things outright or overt that challenged or disrupted priesthood leadership if that makes sense they they didn't they didn't look at it that way they looked at them they still considered themselves as working kind of indirectly under the authority i don't want to say indirectly i'm not sure I'm using my words right but um under the authority of the priesthood they just did it in a much more independent way than Relief Society functions today. How's that? Okay. I think yeah. that's fair. Um, so what, in your opinion, if you took a sort of, um, I don't know what the word to use here, but a sort of a typical 21st century LDS woman and sent her back in time to the 19th century in any given period, what would, in your opinion, what would be some of the most shocking differences that that LDS woman would notice? Um, the extent to which women participated in healing. Hmm. Yeah. And, and almost without fail, when I, when I teach my Mormon women's history class, my students, almost to a person, are more surprised at that than they are at polygamy. Because I think we've been conditioned at the polygamy discussions and all of that, um, I often ask my students, I say, okay, if you could choose between being a polygamous wife and having access to all of these spiritual gifts, healing, laying on of hands, speaking in tongues, glossolalia, all these things that, these wonderful spiritual expressions, autonomous relief society, or on the other hand, monogamous marriage, and being confined more by kind of traditional gender expectations of home and family, which would you choose? And without fail, my cho- my students choose monogamy. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They choose they right. because they're seeing it through their 21st century kind of companionate marriage, romanticized marriage ideal. And polygamy is so abhorrent to our current young generation of of Mormons, they can't even, it's hard for them to conceptualize even a context for polygamy. And I say, yes, but you got to lay on hands, you would get to heal, you would get to speak in tongues, you you had visions. And yeah, 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 but I'll still take monogamy. <laughs> and so it's interesting, I think, and 
to come back to your question, your original question is, my students are often most surprised at to the extent that Mormon women were um, healers, and that 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 female sphere of healing in the context of both childbirth, but not just childbirth, was so much practiced by women of the of the early church that they they've never heard this before or why don't we get to do this anymore those kinds of questions arise a lot so i i stand by that that's probably the most i Mm. I would say the most surprising thing if you were to take a young woman today and send her back to 1870 that's what she'd be most surprised by i think okay so and the reason i asked that question you know you your expertise um at least in the in the world of Mormonism, is sort of women's history and sort of the history of these gender roles in Mormonism. So mm-hmm. we've kind of fleshed out where we started and and sort of where we're at now and what those differences are. So you know, sort of the main uh, crux of what I wanted, uh, what I'd like to hear from you, is how we got to where we're at now. <laughs> because <laughs> I think that's a that's a really interesting I think you have a lot of interesting insight there and so you know um, you know take as much time as you want and and, and kind of tell us you know what sort of happened from that sort of uh, um, that early period in the 19th century moving into the 20th century and I know a lot of things changed at, in the in the post World War II era, yes. And, and so I don't want to. I don't want you to feel like you got to go through, navigate through all these uh, different eras. But maybe in a brief, concise way, is is there a way you can kind of guide our our listeners through that through that? Sure. And if, I, and if I if I start to sound professorial or like I'm lecturing, just kind of stop me and redirect me. But you know, polygamy is at the heart of this, and it's difficult to embrace that or to to look at the a lot of people are reluctant to look at the positive aspects of polygamy because it's still such a touchy issue and because um we so want to disown it um as a culture as a as an institutional church we have worked so hard to disown it um and to disown that past that it's it's tricky for us as historians to go back and reclaim polygamy <laughs> but it has to be done um polygamy was such a diverse marital practice. I mean, I tell my students, just like there are good and bad monogamous marriages, there were good and bad polygamous marriages. Um, But for especially the upper classes, and again, I'm going to insert um, some class ideology here that, you know, when you're talking about poor young women in St. George, Utah in the 1870s, a 17 or 18-year-old girl being told by her father that she has to go marry so-and-so, and then she lives in a you know a one room cabin with three other women. That kind of polygamy certainly existed and was not in any way, shape, or form <laughs> um, empowering. But then you have the upper class women, if I can call them that, the educated, those that were married to the highest leadership of the church. And in many cases, these women lived the most liberated life of any women I've ever studied. They were in, as as educated as they could have been for their, their class and what was available to them. They um, were, they traveled 
they spoke in public. They were suffrage activists. But again, your polygamist, your 18-year-old polygamist wife down in St. George wasn't doing those things. But enough women in the highest leadership of the church were doing those things that it's, it's, we have this kind of duality of, of polygamous, of lived polygamous experience that, you know, we need to um, address and we need to give credit to all of that. But for the women I study, these, you know, these high leaders of the church, the General Relief Society presidents, their counselors, the General Young Women's presidents, their counselors, their, their general boards, these women were fantastically on the cutting edge of everything feminist in 19th century. They were talking and writing about women's rights. They were talking about and writing about women's education, women's hygiene, suffrage, of course, because Mormon women were, um, you know, enjoyed the right to vote for 17 years before it was taken away from them. Um, and so you have to begin there. Now, as far as women kind of working outside the home, well, polygamy almost demanded it in certain ways. And so you have examples like um, Romania Pratt or Ella Ship that were physicians that were actually called to go back east by Brigham Young and become doctors and left their children with their sister polygamous wives so that they could go do this. Or you have... Um, you have this sense of there wasn't a strict dichotomy between either you stay at home or you're active in your public life. I'm thinking of um, May Talmadge, James E. Talmadge's wife. Now, they weren't polygamists. They were monogamists, but at the same time, she was raising young children, and by the time her children were even teenagers, she was already involved in giving speeches and writing about women's issues, etc., while her husband is working on his um, his upper degrees in science, etc. And there wasn't this sense of either you are a stay-at-home mom or you're doing something in the public. Early 19th century, 19th century Mormon women kind of blended those two spheres a little bit better. But I still am going to include the caveat that the upper class educated Mormon women had those opportunities available to them whereas a poor farmer's wife wives would not have had those opportunities available to them so I definitely want to include that there was class differences within Mormonism as far as how you could enjoy polygamy and polygamous life but um, you know they struggled with it they struggled over what what my roles are do I em embrace my domesticity to the exclusion of my public life or can I do my public life and still be a good mother? They struggled with a lot of the same questions that we do today of how can you have it all, quote unquote. So, I don't know, that was a long discussion of polygamy. Did you want that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's perfect. Yeah. So, yeah, and then the 20th century comes around. We've, we've jettisoned polygamy by 1890 and then, you know, technically by 1890 and then officially by 1904. We've jettisoned polygamy um, and so, in many ways, that assimilationist period of the Mormons trying to blend into the American fabric, trying to prove that they are good Americans, required that we also take on some of the larger cultural aspects of being a good American. That means more, of course, traditional families and um, traditional marital and parental roles. And so what, and, did that, what did that look like in the early 20th century? 
Well, I mean, you have the older generation that are still technically polygamous wives, but they can't really admit to it, or they're just living in a kind of polygamy retirement, I guess, for lack of a better description. But their daughters and granddaughters are very much embracing monogamy, and many of them going to college, either at the Brigham Young Academy slash university or one of the other institutions, or some of them even maybe even having opportunities to go back east, and they're very much embracing these kind of progressive era roles about um, women being um, domestic but also um, virtuous and helping to influence public life with your feminine qualities. So you still have hints of progressivism among Mormon women. They are involved in the peace movement for a while. Um, They're involved in the uh, kind of progressive emphasis on health and hygiene for women and children. Um, all of those progressive directions of the you know 1900, 1910 prior to World War One, and it's really after World War One that you start to see Mormon women looking pretty much like the rest of American women. Um, and so, what did uh, what was sort of the typical American female experience post World War One? Well, I mean, certainly you're going to see. The, more higher education for women. I mean, women, because of that uh, post-war emphasis on colleges and colleges camp- college campuses opening up, and you do definitely see that kind of social freedom, not necessarily the full-on sexual freedom of the rest of America, but definitely more social freedom between the genders opening up. And, you know, as you read college, uh, the BYU or Rick's College um, newspapers and um, class directories and these kinds of things and uh, in the 1920s you see the same kinds of things you would have seen at any college you know the the goofy sororities and fraternities and the flirting with each other and going sunbathing and going and drives in the automobile all those same types of things were uh, and to the expectation that you would get married and you would have children and so um in many ways mormon women begin to fall into kind of national expectations about monogamous marriages, family, children, um, and certainly some of them, quote-unquote, worked outside the home, but you you already see these divisions emerging. But what really did it was World War II. I mean, you, you gave me the – you stole my thunder. No, I'm just kidding. You, you said <laughs> World War II didn't just change roles for – I don't want to say change. It, it reified – a very traditional kind of Victorian expectation of what women's roles should be, that idealized domesticity of staying home, that, that whole idea of of uh, the division between the man who goes off to a job somewhere outside of the home and the, the woman stays home. Now, for most Americans, that was a, a, a throwback to the Victorian era. But for Mormons, that wasn't our Victorian experience. Our Victorian experience was polygamy where you have women, we weren't the typical Victorian women in the 19th century. We were, but we weren't maritally. So after World War II, you have this throwback to kind of Victorian expectations of marriage and family and stay-at-home motherhood, whereas Mormon women just kind of took it on and really embraced it. And the rhetoric, of course, for the last 50 years has very much been consistent with that expectation, whereas you didn't necessarily... You know, especially prior to World War One, you didn't necessarily see this rhetoric addressed to Mormon women of either you 
do something in the public sphere or you stay at home with your children. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you.